The Higher Side Chats doesn't start with underwear ads or guilt-tripping donation pleas, nor would I ever commit the cardinal sin of podcasting and interrupt the flow mid-show to show you an unrelated sponsor. But the free first-hour episodes do have to start with a little PSA before we get into it to ever so quickly remind slash inform listeners both old slash new that you're about to get into what I'm sure is a great first hour of a high-level interview, but that means you're missing half the show. If you like what we do around here, get yourself a THC Plus membership and listen to the full two-hour interviews as they were really designed to be and as I know you would enjoy them most. Give a little and actually get a little more in return of the thing you're actually engaging with. Five episodes every month, plus forum access, community comments, downloads to all the closing cover songs, a plus show RSS feed to use with any private RSS feed supported app, and the occasional joint session bonus shows, which include the messages you might leave me about your own theories, experiences, or otherworldly encounters at thehiresidechats.com slash voicemail. If you're not quite sure, if you just want to feel us out, or if you're only here for this particular episode, no worries. New first-time subscribers get a seven-day free trial when you sign up at thehiresidechats.com. Cancel anytime. Try it out, because it's so important to feed the things you want to grow and starve the things that gotta go. And with that said, let's get on with it already, huh? In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Here we go again, Higher Side Chatters, doing the thing from sunny San Diego. I'm Greg Carlwood, and as weird as the waking world can be, it doesn't come close to the serious strangeness of sleep and dreaming. Upon a little reflection, I'm sure many of us have had dreams that felt more vibrant and more real than our normal day-to-day, or have had dreamtime events burned into our brains years later with an impact that the stuff we're told is real just can't match. It's as if the Grand Architect had the wisdom to know our daily lives would eventually coalesce around boring routines, dull jobs, and mundane experiences, and the dream state is a nightly reminder of a deeper mystery to life than the fastest route to the office or why Instagram is down. It calls us to wonder, yet we have been trained to dismiss it all as some kind of sleep time screensaver. And it gets even weirder still when examples of precognitive dreams are in no short supply. And whether it's cataclysmic tragedy or simply taking out the trash, the knowing that you have seen or experienced something before exactly as it's playing out has happened to pretty much all of us, as if reality itself knocks on our mental door and calls us to explore deeper. But we don't pull on that thread because we just ordered a bucket of chicken, we're scrolling our phones, and we're gonna binge a new season of Ozark. Well, here to rekindle the fire of intrigue behind precognitive dreams, the hypnogogic state, consciousness, deja vu, and synchronicity, is the great Gary Lockman. He's a card-carrying member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the author of over 20 books on subjects ranging from the Western esoteric tradition, the evolution of consciousness, the crossroads between esotericism, society, and culture to biographies of intriguing characters like Aleister Crowley, Rudolf Steiner, Carl Jung, Madame Blavatsky, Emanuel Swedenborg, Colin Wilson, and more. 
We did this once before discussing his book, The Return of Holy Russia, Apocalyptic History, Mystical Awakening, and the Struggle for the Soul of the World. And we're doing the dance once again to talk about his latest book, Dreaming Ahead of Time, Experiences with Precognitive Dreams, Synchronicity, and Coincidence. Back in the saddle and ready to ride, the dream diary diehard, esoteric culture author and explorer of intriguing curiosities, Gary Lockman, welcome back to The Higher Side. Well, I have to say that has to be one of the most amazing introductions I've ever I've ever had to live up to. <laughs> so thank you so much, Greg, for that. You've set the bar a few inches higher, and that's made us stretch. So we're going to go for it. But yes, thank you very much. I'm very, very happy to be back here uh, having another Higher Side chat. Yes, man. Attention spans are short these days, so you got to grab them. And I am psyched <laughs> to talk to you again. Thank you for your time. I really enjoyed the last one, and this book was also jam-packed with interesting ideas and fun stories and the conclusions of history's great thinkers who have tackled the issues of precognitive dreams, synchronicity, consciousness, and time. Really good stuff. This has clearly been an interest of yours for a long time because you've been recording your dreams on and off for the last 40 years. Let's kick it off with the age-old question of why this book and why now? Well, why now is, I say at the beginning of the book, is I gave a talk here in London in 2019, back in the old days before COVID came to town. And it was part of a series of events going on in London called the Borderlands of Sleep. And it was at a wonderfully old Victorian cemetery here, um, Brompton Cemetery over in West London. And I gave a talk on hypnagogia. And hypnagogia, I'm sure your listeners know, but it's that in-between state, that liminal state between sleeping and waking, which we pass through at least you know twice a day, once we're falling asleep and waking up. There's some people who split hairs between hypnagogic is when you're falling asleep, hypnopompic is when you're waking up. But just for all intents and purposes, it's you know pretty much the same kind of thing. And it's the very, very strange state of mind. And among other things that happen in that hypnagogic state are some paranormal experiences, or they've been known to happen in that state, one of which is a form of precognition, where you sort of know something in advance of it actually taking place. And as that was the case, towards the end of the talk, I tagged on a few references and examples of precognitive dreams. And the most famous one is his famous book. Well, it used to be famous. It came out almost 100 years ago now. Amazing how old this stuff is now. Called An Experiment with Time. And this was written by J.W. Dunn, who was an aeronautics engineer. He had no interest in the occult, really. Or at least he said so in that book. It later subsequently came out that he did. But at that time, when he first published the book. And just by chance, he discovered that he dreamed the future. And he gives an account of you know, several dreams that he had in which he dreamed events that were going to happen to him, particularly. It's not like you're raised up above some vast temporal landscape and you can see the future, like Criswell predicts. It's not like that. Mm -hmm. It's specifically your own future. What is going to happen to you? As if it's a film. And a couple scenes from the film have jumped ahead of the queue, jumped ahead of line, sequence, and you're seeing them in advance when they really should take place. So I tagged those things on, and I also tagged on some of my own. Because I have been recording these sorts of precognitive or what they call done type dreams in the literature for the last 40 years. And funnily enough, the next day after the talk, I went onto Twitter, as one does, 
And one of the first things I saw was a tweet from someone who had been at the talk. And it was a woman and, and she wrote, OMG, with you know a few <laughs> exclamation points. It's true. And blah, blah, blah. I went to this talk about future dreams. And she said that she dreamt that she had picked a hedgehog up off the road. And hedgehogs are these strange creatures that are you know very prominent here in Great Britain. And picked it up off the road and put it on the, on the pavement, the sidewalk, so it wouldn't get run over you know, by a car. And she said the first thing she saw on her Twitter feed that morning was a post about how to protect the hedgehogs. Hmm. So I said, okay, well, there you go. You know, it wasn't exactly the future, but it was very close. Because often these dreams are subject to something I call symbolic distortion. And that's because dreams speak in a symbolic language anyway. So that happening, you know, getting that tweet after the talk made me think, hmm, okay. And as it was, when was that? It was sort of, okay, that's the end of 2019. I spent the first lockdown here in the UK. So I guess it's sort of the spring to the summer of 2020 now. So two years ago, more or less, writing this book. And as I said, I've been recording these dreams for the last 40 years. And I start off going back to about 1980. That's when I start recording the first of these dreams after I read Dunn's book. And I did exactly what he said to do. He said, if you want to know whether this is true, because he first starts off thinking that it's some strange thing that happened to him. Then he finds out that this happens to other people as well. So for him, it's a kind of common human experience that we're just not aware of because we don't pay attention to our dreams and all that. Mm -hmm. And he said, if you want to corroborate what I'm saying, just start writing your dreams down. And so I did. And he was right. <laughs> That's a really good summary. And last time we spoke, the COVID lockdowns were really just starting to happen. And you mentioned an old dream that you had written down where you were told, just stay inside where it's safe, which is pretty synchronistic. But do you have any other examples of impressive precognitive dreams that you would share with people? Well, the one I highlight in the book, or say for me, seems the most conclusive, is that in 1990, I had a dream about a film about the shadow, which is the old 1930s pulp magazine character, Lamont Cranston, you know, who had gone to Tibet and learned the secrets of having to cloud men's minds and all this sort of thing. And then he comes back and he fights crime. And he's kind of a proto-Batman sort of thing. But this was an old pulp magazine character. And I, I read these stories when I was a kid growing up. You know, they were out in paperback and all that. I mean, they started out in the 30s and 40s, but they came out in paperback when I was growing up and all that. So I had this dream in 1990, okay, about this film, a film being made about this character. And in the dream, there was a scene in which the shadow is two-dimensional and he's walking along a wall, but he's two-dimensional. So it's as if he's projected flat and then he steps out of it and becomes three-dimensional. And then there's another scene, this was in the dream, where... His trademark 45, he has a 45, you know, automatic. He has two of them, actually. And this is way before The Matrix, so they, <laughs> they may have picked it up from him. And there's a scene in which, in my dream, again, this is 1990, in, in this dream I've had, where all I saw was his gun, and it's like against the hall of mirrors, so it's being reflected in many, many different sort of surfaces. And then something in the dream, it was about a sphere, the film had to do with some kind of sphere, and that was some central kind of thing. Okay, so that's 1990. 
four years later in 1994, with my ex-wife, well, my future ex-wife, we were married at the time, but that's how I affectionately refer to her now. <laughs> we went to see The Shadow, starring Alec Baldwin. It's actually not a bad, you know, I mean, by today's standards, the special effects seem creaky, but it's actually not a bad film. Mm-hmm. And I said to her on the way, oh, you know, I had a dream about this, you know, and strange, this kind of scene happens and this scene happens and it's about a sphere and all that. And lo and behold, in the film, the two scenes that I just described are there to a T. And the plot of the film surrounds these mad, evil characters wanting to blow up New York using something called the beryllium sphere so as far as i'm concerned four years in advance i dream the plot and two scenes from that film and that wasn't (laughs) the only film that i I dreamt in advance much less of a time lag you know much closer to actually happening again my ex-wife at the time she was working for sony studios and one of the films they were working on was copula's dracula and there was a special screening of it that we were invited to before it was you know released to the public and before that before she even mentioned that that was happening i had this dream in which it's like this horrible hieronymus bosch you know dante-esque or william hesperos-esque kind of hell scene with you know burning bodies and wolves kind of crucified and limbs and people wading through limbs and stuff of this sort and I describe it in more detail in the book, but it's the general kind of thing. And then we were invited to the special screening, and it was all hush-hush. This was, you know, we weren't supposed to say anything. So even though my wife at the time was working on the film, she didn't mention a word to me about it. And the opening of the film was exactly that dream that I had had. So, I mean, there's quite a few in the book. I mean, in a way, yes, it's, it's some, yeah. some of it's a laundry list, because so there's this one and this one. And it was just like, as you said, I went back into these dream journals I've been keeping since about the 80s. And in them, you know, I pulled out basically the best ones that seemed to me. Yeah, there's no shortage of examples from you personally and examples from other people throughout history. There's a really interesting example from London artist David Mandel, where on September 11th, 1996, He woke from a nightmare in which he saw two towers collapsing from the impact of an earthquake. He had the same dream six months later. This time he painted it, producing a watercolor in which the towers appeared with a small pyramidal building. Nine months later from then, he had a similar dream in which two airplanes hit two buildings from opposite directions. And you know where this is going. (laughs) In 2001... When he saw the attacks in the World Trade Center on television, five years to the day of his initial dream, Mandel was shaken, you write. He realized that his watercolor exactly matched the New York skyline with the burning towers flanked by the pyramid-topped American Express building. And he also is someone who's had recurring precognitive dreams. Apparently, there's a documentary about him. Mm. But I was also going to quote you here when you talk about the hypnogogic state, and you say, while... On the hypnagogic threshold, we can have some unusual experiences. We can watch dreams form and see them with a startling vividness while yet still being awake and aware of our surroundings. And 
That's strange. I can't recall having the experience of watching dreams form while still kind of awake, but I also haven't practiced it. It seems like maybe you have. What insights have you gotten into dreaming overall by hanging out in that hypnagogic state? Well, I mean, it's something that, uh, how should we say it? You can acquire the habit of being able to remain in that state. Or you can just sort of learn how to pay attention as you're falling asleep. I mean, it's best actually to do it if you can get up early in the morning, a bit earlier than you usually do, and drift out of sleep rather than sink into sleep. The reason it's better is that oftentimes before you get the hang of it, you just get a bad night's sleep if you're trying to stay awake as you're falling asleep, right? Which is the exact opposite of what you want to do. But if you can linger a bit in the morning, you're waking up, but you can say, okay, I'm going to stay in this state for a while. I don't need to wake up immediately just yet. I mean, one of the things, there's a long history of that itself. Going back to Aristotle, the ancient Greeks, they were aware of this in-between state. There's a very, very long history of it. More recently, the Surrealists in Paris, well, like they said more recently, 100 years ago almost now. <laughs> hmm. They're the moderns, but they're a long time ago now. They used to hold kind of sleep-offs, you might call them, in the cafes where different poets, Robert Desnos was one, who was able, apparently, to send himself off into this kind of state, you know, pretty quickly. And then he would just, sort of this automatic speech or automatic writing, but he would just kind of give forth this kind of poetic word salad, as it were. And Andre Breton would be there, and, you know, some other people would copy it down and that kind of thing. But, you know, people like Jung, people like Swedenborg, the um, Swedish savant who's first half of his life was as a scientist, and then he had a series of strange experiences in his 50s. He was visited by angels and Jesus and, you know, a variety of other rather you know, luminous characters and telling him that he had to give up science and now to pursue the inner worlds. Rudolf Steiner, there's reason to believe that when he said he, you know, he visited the Akashic records or, you know, saw the Akashic plan and that kind of thing, that he put himself into a kind of hypnagogic state. So it's something that you can't actually work at to learn how to do. This is like anything else. You know, if you want to learn how to play a clarinet, it doesn't, you know, the first time you try, it doesn't work hmm. most times. Right. So, you know, you have to learn it doing. I mean, myself personally, one of the examples I gave when I first became interested in this sort of thing was that I was reading a book about, I forget the name of the book now, but it was a book about how both Jung, well, Freud and Jung were both very influenced by Greek mythology in the way that they spoke or expressed their ideas about the unconscious and the psyche and, and so on and so on. And this is some years ago, I sort of took a nap or, you know, dozed off in the afternoon after reading this book a bit. And as I was falling asleep, I had an image of old cellar doors, you know, if you know, like, I guess in the Midwest, you know, like behind the house, there's the old cellar doors, you get into the cellar that way, the storm cellar. And they were kind of something was pushing behind them, you know, trying to open up, trying to get out. And it was like opening, opening, and then suddenly it burst open. And then all these mythological characters came out. And that was a symbolic representation of what actually was happening to me as I drifted into sleep, dozing off. You know, the cellar is the underworld, the underground. I'm slowly moving into it. The doors are opening, open, and suddenly open. And then I had been reading about all of these mythological characters that both Freud and Jung were referring to in order to talk about 
their versions of the unconscious. Mm -hmm. And the reason I'm saying this is there was an early um, Freudian, a fellow named Herbert Silberer, who most people don't know about. And he wrote about the unconscious and alchemy even before Jung did. He wrote a book called Hidden Symbolism of Alchemy in the Hermetic Arts or something along those lines. Sadly, he was excommunicated from Freud's circle, and Freud had such a fantastic power over some of his acolytes that he drove them to suicide, and Herb Silver wound up hanging himself because Freud excommunicated him. But Jeez. luckily before that, he wrote this paper about hypnagogic phenomena and said they are auto-symbolic, self-symbolic. So the images, the voices, you hear voices sometimes. You know, actually, in the beginning of the book, sort of the dedication, as it were, I quote something I heard as I was drifting in the hypnagogic state. And it says, Lord, help me believe in the primary dreams of which my life is made. Huh. I didn't think that. It just I heard I heard some voice saying that. So as you drift off into sleep, you can hear voices say something to you. You have different images happen. But they're not random. We tend to think they're random because we don't pay attention to this stuff and we're told not to pay attention to it. Mm -hmm. But if you do pay attention to it, you see that it isn't random, that actually there's an intelligence behind it. The symbols are symbolic of either what you were just thinking about or your emotional state or even your physical state. So nowadays, often as I'm falling asleep, I see little men like hopping downstairs if you remember Slinkies, I don't know if anybody remembers <laughs> yeah, Slinkies. Sure. I, I grew up in Slinkies. Remember the Slinkies going down the stairs? Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like that. So I see an image of little men kind of hopping down the stairs and going down. That's what's happening. You're going down. You're falling asleep. You're going down into the dark unconscious. And so it's <laughs> what I've discovered over the years is that whatever it is is responsible for these things, dreams, synchronicities, whatever they may be. It's intelligent. And I shouldn't even say it, because I think it's more of a who than a what. <laughs> yes, I had, yeah. I had that line written down from your book. Often it seems that the agency responsible for our dreams is more of a who than a what. And it does feel like there can be some kind of director being shepherding our dreams, but it's hard to put a face on or a name. Well, yes, I agree. And it's like... Jung talked about this. He didn't feel that they, we say the unconscious because immediately that sets up a lot of problems because we posit a particular concrete thing or entity that's the unconscious. When, you know, I don't know what's happening in China right now, so I'm not conscious of that. <laughs> so that's <laughs> part of the unconscious in, in some, you know, broad kind of way. But still, he said, there seems to be an intelligence, but it's somebody who doesn't seem to have a focal point. Like we have it, we, you and I talking now, you know, our egos, our I, our sense of I, it's a kind of bright magnetic center focal point that, you know, draws the elements of consciousness together. And, you know, we feel that sense, but the unconscious doesn't seem to have that kind of, as far as we can tell. Although at the same time, there does seem to be an intelligence. The commentary, well, this is what Jung said, you know, the dreams are a commentary and they serve a compensating function for our biased waking attitudes. Precisely in order to enjoy the advantages of having that tight focal point that we call the ego, I, me and you, in order to have that, we have to sort of edit out quite a bit. So that's not part of what we see. 
and what we use in order to make our decisions. And so the unconscious brings in that element that we've excluded from our conscious attitude. That's one way to look at it. That's kind of its function or its teleology, its purposiveness is to do that, so to compensate. But then, you know, it does sort of more than that, because that might just seem kind of like a mechanical balancing out thing, but it does often seem what Jung said, that what he calls the perspective tendencies. And it was precisely that, that notion that the unconscious had a perspective tendency in the sense that it was future-oriented. Freud just looked at it as cause and effect. You had that dream, that's because that happened to you when you were six years old or whatever, you know. Whereas Jung said, oh, you had that dream. Mm, that means this is pointing towards something in the future. It's pointing towards something that wants to express itself. The unconscious wants to become conscious. It wants to complement or make whole the conscious attitude. So it has a teleology. It's pushing towards the future, not just being pushed by the past, which is Freud's fundamentally mechanical kind of thing. So, I mean, I just came to see that sort of thing. And it's also, over time, if you do write down your dreams and don't look at them for a while and then go back, say, three months later, go back and look at, go back, you know, dreams from that period, you'll see patterns emerging. You'll see, you know, symbols coming out. And you don't have to go archetype hunting, which I think that happens. Some people get into that aspect of Jung, Jung thing, which really, that just takes off. You can go with that forever. You know, what he called the amplification. You can keep finding resonances and echoes with mythology and things of that sort. But if you just kind of think, okay, dreams, they, they speak in a symbolic language. They tell stories. They tell jokes. They really often tell jokes and plays on words and puns. And it's almost like you could be too clever by half and miss what's happening, because sometimes it's so obvious. It's like a really bad joke. You know, it's like, it's very, very obvious. And then when you see that, it's like, oh, man. One thing, if you know the Transformer films, yeah. the only reason I know them is when my sons were young, they loved them, so we watched them. But the little guy, Bumblebee, right? he can't talk. He can't speak like the other ones do. But what he does is that he picks up bits and pieces from the radio or whatever. I guess it's the radio because he's in the car. And he uses that, that song, a line from that song or some news report or something in order to say what he has to say. So he can't communicate, but he doesn't speak in sequential logical language like, you know, the other ones do. And that's sort of how whoever is responsible for dreams speaks in that way. It communicates, but not in a direct way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask you about what you would say we could do to dial up or achieve better dream value discernment or even dial down the symbolic distortion that you mentioned, because it seems like there might be something we can do to increase the meaningful or insightful dreams and decrease the random ones. Or maybe there's none that are random. We just haven't found the meaning. But how would you say people could get better at interpreting the language or finding the meaning in a greater number of their dreams rather than I'd say for a lot of people, it's probably maybe one in 10 feel meaningful when maybe they all are if we had better eyes to see, as they say. Well, what I'm going to say, please don't take this as a plug or advertisement for therapists or, or right. you know, <laughs> psychologists, but it's often, I should say, often someone else can see what the language of the dream is saying, your particular dream, 
better than you can. I mean, each of us individually are very often the worst person <laughs> to try to understand what the dream is saying, precisely because it's our unconscious. We are unconscious of that. Right. I mean, that's you have to remember. It's like what Jung says in, in that famous interview, the unconscious it's really unconscious. You know? <laughs> so we are unconscious of that. So this is stuff that we don't know about ourselves. I mean, we can do our best. And that's why I say over time, sometimes you can. So a dream I'm having now, right, whatever, I write it down. I do and I, okay, what was that? And again, I look for everything. And, you know, I'm a writer, so I'm aware of metaphor and, you know, plays on words and, you know, that kind of thing. But then if I go back and read from, you know, dreams from October maybe or September, I'll see stuff now that I wouldn't have seen then because I'm not myself in that psychic milieu that those dreams took place in. But, you know, someone outside can see it because they have an objective position and all that. So it's not guaranteed, but you have a better chance of doing that. But I mean, I think the thing is, is like, are all dreams meaningful? I think the best thing is not to get too anxious about it, but write them down. In my experience, I go through different there's times when there's too many of them, there's too much. Other times it's like, oh, how boring. And I, uh, do I want to write another boring dream down? Well, like I do it because that's my meditation or whatever. I'm committed to doing that. So I do it. But you develop, it's kind of, I don't want to say channel because that's like a loaded word, but you, you develop, you, know, you develop a relationship in a way. I mean, if you think of it that who or whatever is responsible for creating the dreams is somebody you like to get to know, but they're a bit shy. And you have to remember, they're not direct. I mean, what they say may be direct. What they say may be, oh, my God, yeah, bang, this is something I need to know. But they don't say it in a direct way. you know. And in some ways, as we say, they're counting on our intelligence to figure it out. Right. And they're infinitely patient. And they keep sending up. <laughs> He'll get it at some point. <laughs> He'll get it at some point. You know, and that's what it is. And it's us. As Jung said, it's a part of us sending postcards to another part. Yeah, and I've also heard people talk about if you pose a question or something like some dreamland eight ball, like you will get a better response. So maybe this thing on the other end of the line is like, oh, they're actually paying attention this time. Maybe they get more excited about delivering something. Well, absolutely. If you pay attention, again, he or she or whom or whatever is responsible will respond. And Rudolf Steiner, in a different context, but well, more or less in the same world we're talking about, but in, in his own kind of you know way of talking about it, he said that if you wanted to speak with the dead, what you did is that you asked the question as you fell asleep. And as you woke up, you'd get the answer. So we're back in the hypnagogic state again. Right. And in Jung, he kind of says it is the dead, but he doesn't <laughs> quite say it. He's had Dr. Professor. Ich bin ein, you know, he's a scientist. You know, it's Wissenschaft. You know, he's not a mystic, but he does more or less say that, you know, if you become aware of the collective unconscious, if you become aware of... The archetypes, then you are connected with your ancestors and you're connected with. And he, he had his own, you know, just like Steiner and Swedenborg. All of these guys had a deep relationship with the dead and not necessarily morbid, but in the sense that they felt they had a contact with that world. And that world connects with the dream world. And 
time and all the mysteries in which we find ourselves as you know as we slowly wake up in this world we find ourselves in we realize that you know the fundamental things are absolutely as mysterious as the first time we first became aware of the mystery mm -hmm. yeah and another strange fact from your book is that you mention all mammals seem to dream but reptiles and amphibians seem not to so i guess queen elizabeth and klaus schwab would be pretty lost in this conversation uh you must have lost me there <laughs> oh you mean because david ike yeah so, you know yeah the reptilian thing there's uh, a low-hanging okay I, I got it yeah. well i mean yeah yeah no i i, I understand no, no I, I got i got it well i mean as far as we can tell according to sort of the scientific research into it yeah dreaming starts up with mammals with warm-blooded animals and it goes back very 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 far and the strange thing about that is that how should we say it well one of the things i write about in the book and i've, I've experienced a great deal of and i actually wrote quite a bit about it but i had to take it out of the book it didn't quite fit in is a strange phenomenon known as sleep paralysis mm -hmm. and if you've ever experienced this it's like when we fall asleep right and then we fall into a dream state in order so that we do not act out what's actually happening in the dream our brain shuts down the centers that you know allow us to move whatever parts of the brain that may be and this goes back to our earlier you know pre-human mammalian ancestry you know so the earliest mammals when they fell asleep and they dreamed they developed this sleep paralysis it was an evolutionarily adaptive strategy. But strategy to do what? To preserve dreaming. You have to think about that. Evolution went out of its way to develop methods by which we could preserve dreaming. Because, you know, if, <laughs> if dreaming wasn't considered that important, evolution, whatever, you know, wouldn't have bothered to invent sleep paralysis. It would have got rid of dreaming. Because, you know, what happened, you know, the thing was that if you're sleeping and, and you're able to move around and all that, then your predators will hear that and they'll come and eat you. But if you're sleeping and you're not able to move around, you can have the dream and your predators won't know about it. And even today, you know, dog owners, you know, watch their dogs and they're sleeping. They, they can see that the dogs are dreaming. Yeah. And they even have REM. They have rapid eye movement and stuff like that. But they're in a sleep paralysis. and. As I said, I wasn't able to put it into the book, but one of the strangest experiences of my life was during a state of sleep paralysis. And I seemed to be in about three different states of consciousness at the same time. Hmm. I wrote about it at length, but I had to take it out because it just didn't fit in. And I don't even know if I can explain it now, but I was, sleep paralysis is when you say, your body is, your muscles are torpid, as the word is, you know, they're slack. They don't respond to any messages to move. And that's said, that's an evolutionary strategy that we've inherited by mammalian ancestors so that we don't act out what we're dreaming and attract predators. But what happens to some people, it certainly happened to me quite a bit, especially if I fell asleep on my back at night, not during the, it's all this weird, sh it wouldn't happen during the day. If I took a nap during the day, it wouldn't happen. If I fell asleep at night on my back, this is when it would happen. I would fall asleep, then I'd wake up. But my mind would be awake, but my body would be slack. I wasn't able to move. 
I could barely move my little finger the slightest bit with an enormous amount of effort of will. And then bang, it would kick in and I, I would jump, <laughs> you know, out of bed. And this is something that goes back to, um, well, nowadays people use it as an explanation for, you know, alien abduction experiences or out of the body experiences or so on and so on. If you haven't experienced it, it's one of the strangest kinds of things. And there was one time when I was in this sleep paralysis state, I was in a dream, and I was also aware of the outer world that I was in. I was aware of my ex-wife trying to wake me up out of the dream. She was also in the dream trying to wake me up. Huh. And then I was in some other third state when I was aware of those two things, both the dream and the quotation mark real life. Right wife trying to wake me up so i mean <laughs> once you start going down these strange tunnels you realize consciousness and our experiences is a much stranger thing than anybody thinks they know about right right and when people talk about sleep paralysis that's often when they have the incubus succubus experiences and hag attacks and these beings that seem to be in the room and only move forward when you're in a heightened state of fear as if they feed on it it gets quite weird and we cannot function without sleep. I mean, as long as our lives are, you might be able to go two days, three, if you really uh, put the energy and effort into it, I guess. Mm. But beyond that, I mean, you will drive yourself crazy. You cannot live without sleep. And that's a really odd mechanism for life. And I was going to ask you a little bit more about synchronicity, because when it comes to mm. call it meaningful coincidence, you write about Young's take on synchronicity, which I think most people are familiar with, but then also Paul Kamerer's concept of seriality and J.W. Dunn's surrealism idea. How would you compare and contrast these other models for this phenomenon we could call meaningful coincidence? All right. Well, Jung's synchronicity is, just as you said, meaningful coincidence. So there's something you're thinking about, something in your head, right? Some concern of yours. And then suddenly outside in the real world, the outside world, you see something that just resonates with that so remarkably acute that you can't help but think, how did that happen? All right, so I'll give you an example of my own experience very quick. I write about it in the book. Again, back before COVID hit, I was on my way to give a talk here in London at the Theosophical Society on Colin Wilson who's a writer who's written about all this sort of stuff, and he's also been a major influence on my own work. And his most famous book was his first book, and it's called The Outsider. And it's a study of, you know, existential anxiety and madness and, and men of genius and so on and so on. So I was on my way to give a talk about this. And then on the way, I thought, ah, there's something I need. I have enough time. I'll pop into this market just to grab what I need on the way to give the talk. And so I'm in the checkout line, and there's a magazine rack, and the magazines are so placed that all I can see of Vogue is the title that it's Vogue, and then the headline of a lead article. That's all I can see, like a, a thin band, <laughs> and everything else is blocked out by the magazines. And what's the headline of the lead article? The Outsider. So on my way to talk about The Outsider, by chance, I pop into a market and look at the cover of Vogue, and all I see of that cover, all I can see, 
is just the words the outsider so i laugh i take a photo of it <laughs> post it on twitter and then i talk about it at the talk and then on the way home i stop in the same market because it's on my way home because there's something else i needed and i thought you know what i'm gonna go look at that magazine see what was that all about it couldn't have been about the i subsequently found out it was about a singer named billy eilish who i i don't know anything about <laughs> but i thought i'll go check and see what that was about but then when i got there it wasn't there all the magazines had been changed the new issues had been put in place so if i hadn't popped in as they say here on my way to give the talk about the outsider i wouldn't have seen that sliver of a cover of vogue for march that year 2019 i think <laughs> the lead article called the outsider so that's the synchronicity and what makes it a synchronicity it's a coincidence but it's a meaningful coincidence because it was it was meaningful to me that i was on my way to give a talk about that so i i took it as like you know a tap on the shoulder good show <laughs> we're with you you know my guardian angel whatever you might say but Paul Kamera is a very fascinating character. He was an Austrian scientist, a biologist. And there's a wonderful book by a writer, Arthur Kessler, who's another writer from the 20th century who most is not read these days as much, but he should be. And he wrote a book called The Case of the Midwife Toad. And why it has that strange title is the midwife toad is a toad, is a, an animal that Kamera used in experiments to prove what's known as the inheritance of acquired characteristics, which is a mouthful, but basically that means that if one generation works really hard to develop and adapt to you know, the environment and successful adaptation, they can pass that on to the next generation through their genes. And strict Darwinian, neo-Darwinian says, no, 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 the gene plasm is inviolate, you just can't get to it. The only thing that can get to it is random mutations. It's like, so the smithy in the village who worked really hard and has strong muscles, he cannot pass those muscles on to his children. And what Lamarck, who's a French natural scientist before Darwin, said, no, no, this happens. And the giraffe got its long neck because earlier giraffes reached up to get not the low-hanging fruit, but the nicer fruit that was a bit further up the tree. So they made efforts to stretch and stretch and stretch mm -hmm. and reach and reach, and they passed that on and so on and so on. In a way, it's kind of what Rupert Sheldrake has talked about in his idea of morphic resonance. It plays a part in that. Mm -hmm. So in any case, that's why camera is interesting. But in this book, Kessler also talks about another aspect of his work, was that he was very interested in what he called seriality, where he saw where similar things happened in sequence or many of them happen simultaneously. So it goes back to the old adage that, you know, things happen in threes, or there's always like, if some celebrity dies and we hear about it, then we usually hear about two other ones. <laughs> At least when I was growing up, that was the thing. So, mm -hmm. oh, so-and-so died. Oh, then you, you waited a while, then you would hear about two other ones who died as well. So strange phenomena, things happen in threes. And so camera collected, not necessarily, well, the coincidences when they happen simultaneously. So you could have a cluster, Lots of similar things all happening at the same time and place. Or you can have several similar things happening in sequence. So somebody might lose something, let's say. You might have a day where you lose three or four things. And, you know, or, or this, that's that maybe a lame example. But I'm trying to think of some off the top of my head. But he collected these kinds of things. And he believed there was a law you know, just like gravity, where similar things happen together. 
similar things are collected together. And then Dunn's serialism is different. This is how he tried to explain the future dreams he was having. And what that meant was that he developed different levels of time. So to explain the fact that in the dream state, he somehow had access to future events. He developed this notion of different observers. So observer one is you and I in our everyday life. We're stuck glued to the present. The past is behind us. It's dead. We have no access to it anymore. The future hasn't happened yet. We have our nose right down to the railway line of sequential, you know, time and events. And our job is basically to gather information about all this sort of stuff. And then he said, what we have is an observer too. It's another level of consciousness, but this is in the dream state when we fall asleep. And when we go into the dream state, our consciousness is no longer anchored in harness to the present moment. And in many ways, his ideas, he doesn't refer to the philosopher Henri Bergson, but they're very similar along the same lines as the French philosopher Henri Bergson, who said that the brain is the organ of attention to life. The brain is what we use to deal with life. So the brain deals with, you know, how do we maneuver through things? How do we deal with things? And as a practical application and all that. And in order to do that, it cuts out an enormous amount of information that's there, but it's not necessary for us to survive. It's irrelevant to what we need to do in order to get through our life and all that. So Don, although he doesn't mention Bergson, his notion of our everyday you know, waking the state we're in right now, hopefully, <laughs> is, you know, one which we're fixed into, you know, right now and dealing with life. But when we sleep, we're sort of that harness, you know, falls off us and our consciousness rises up a little bit. And then we can see the past because there's so many dreams in which we have the past in a very vivid way. You know, some past event comes back to you, but we can see the future as well. And then Don also said there's another level above that as well, in which we can sort of, so dream one, observer one, fixed on the present, waking consciousness, level two, the dream state, future and past mixed together. Level three is above that, looking down on that. And unfortunately, in the end, I mean, he falls into the trap, the metaphysical horror of what's known as infinite regress. So he keeps having another time, another time, another observer and observer, because, you know, each level of time requires somebody outside of it in order to, you know. So we start out with the mystery of dreams. This is one of the things I sort of try to express in the book. It's like we have the mystery of dreams, but then you, you just the precognitive bit and all that, you slip into the mystery of time, mm -hmm. which is even stranger yes. <laughs> than dreams. Because we know we have dreams and we might not know exactly what they're about, but we know we have them. But as soon as you start thinking about time, it's a horrible cliche, but it slips through your fingers. <laughs> yes, yes. You cannot grab hold of it in any way whatsoever. It's true. And I have some questions about time, but I also wanted to mention this. So you also say that Kamer's seriality is similar to what in probability theory is known as the law of large numbers. And I love that you touch on that because it's something that really blows my mind and doesn't get talked about nearly enough. This idea that if enough random events are recorded, they produce stable, ordered patterns. As you say, the insurance industry is based on this fact. 
and you give examples like the number of people bitten by dogs in a single day, <laughs> according to statistics provided by the New York Department of Health, this proves to be a remarkably stable number. In 1955, it was 75.3. In 1956, it was 73.6. In 1957, it was 73.5 and so on. You say no one can tell which dog will bite which person. That's the random <laughs> part. And how the dogs themselves know when enough people have been bitten so that they can stop is unclear. But the statistical average remains constant. I haven't seen statistics for more recent years, but I imagine they're not radically different. And I just really love not only that example, but there's just so many. You also talk about the number of murders in a given year. We don't know who will be killed or by whom. Suicides. The average remains the same. Suicides. It's very weird. What does the law of large numbers say to you about reality? Well, I mean, it's just one of these weird things that if you fall into this area of study, it's something you come up against or you discover. And it just seems to be the case, as you say, you know, what strikes us as random events, if you collect enough of them, they produce some kind of statistical pattern. And I guess this is sort of the characteristic of the quantum world and the elementary particle world and all that, right? Because, you know, the actions of all these individual particles appear random, but there's a statistical average about them that enables us to, gives us a predictive, you know, power with them and that kind of thing. Yeah, it's just one of those really, really strange things. How do the dogs know when to stop biting? <laughs> yeah. How do the poor people who are driven through horrible life experiences to commit suicide know when there's enough of them? And <laughs> I'm sorry to make a morbid joke, but can you imagine the one who just like went over the edge? Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> All the other ones did it and then we reached the statistical number and maybe he was saved in some strange way. He or she was saved. It, it seems to strike resonances. It must strike resonances with, Sheldrake's idea of morphic resonance and that kind of thing, where somehow it's passed on, you know? It, uh, 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 <laughs> well, how should I say? I'm going to resort to the cliche these days of like quantum entanglement, but it must be something like that. I mean, how do the elementary particles know what the other elementary particles are doing? Right. How do the neurons in the brain that are not contiguous, they're not next to each other, so we can't imagine a, a neuronic elbow banging into the next one and telling it to light up. But there are neurons in their brain that are associated with certain, you know, operations or actions taken. They're not contiguous, they're not next to each other, but they fire at the same time. How do they know, you know, when to do that? It's very strange. It makes me picture some grand cosmic being playing like a giant pipe organ, but instead of music, it creates something like a symphony of events on the physical plane. But <laughs> I like what you said about how do we know when there's enough? Because it's like, makes me think about how sometimes when people have car accidents, they're saved by an angel. And then other times they're not. Maybe the angels know. It's like, hey, we're at capacity for today's deaths by car accident. So uh, you're going to get pulled out of the wreckage, buddy. <laughs> Yeah, we, that's right. We reached the quota already. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, who knows? I mean, I tell you, it sounds banal, but in another conversation with somebody else, another podcast, they asked me, like, you know, you, you've written all these books and all this time is happening and you've written this book and you, you, you've kind of opened up about experiences of your own and all that. So, you know, where are you at now? And I just feel like I'm just beginning. I'm just starting to think, you know, 
and has said, all this stuff is real. And what does that mean? What does it really mean that it's all real? You know, temporal displacements, strange phenomena like this. I'm saying rhetorically because I don't really have an answer to that, but it is sort of a more um, emotive feeling of its cogency and reality. And, you know, perhaps it's got something to do with the fact that I'm, you know, I'm getting on in years. I'm, you know, I'm desperately clawing on to late middle age. <laughs> so I'm I'm aware that I'm approaching the infinite, although it's around us at all times anyway. So perhaps I'm shrugging off concerns that are more parochial and trying to focus on broader ones. Right. <laughs> Very much possible. You also write a bit about dream history, let's say, and how cultures like the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Chinese, Hindus, and Babylonians all interpreted the dream experience. Egyptians thought they were warnings from the gods. Babylonians thought they came from spirits. What more can you tell us about some of the oldest thoughts on dreams and who had the most interesting ideas about them? Well, it's remarkable that in the mid-19th century, when the library of the Babylonian king Ashurbanipal was unearthed, that what they found in it, among other things, was a collection of records of dreams going back millennia. So Ashurbanipal is in 600 BC, thereabouts. And he had collected tablets. This wasn't papyrus, this was tablets. And I don't mean, you know, uh, computer tablets. <laughs> I mean, you know, stone, stone, you know, heavy stone tablets of dream records going back to, you know, 2,000 years before him. So Ashurbanipal is old for us, but he thought it important to hold on to these dream records from 2,000 years earlier than himself. And another odd thing is that in that cache of Ashurbanipal's library was discovered Gilgamesh, which is considered the first extant work of great literature, you know, rather than sort of religious literature. In Gilgamesh itself, there's the earliest account of a dream interpretation. So there's a strange kind of link between literacy or literature and the elements of literature and dreams. And that becomes apparent, as I mentioned earlier, when people, you know, if you start paying attention to dreams, dreams tell a story, they use metaphor, they have dramatis personae and things of that sort. You know, there's a beginning, middle and end. They may not happen all in that sequence <laughs> sometimes, mm -hmm. but that's, but they have that. And I mentioned earlier about dreams telling jokes. And that's one of the things that the Egyptians realized, that the dreams speak in a kind of plays on words and puns. Although what may have got a smile or laugh out of an Egyptian, it probably wouldn't raise too many laughs today. So early on, I think people realized that dreams are very much of the time and place in which they happen. So that would say that the kind of you know, one size fits all, all purpose kind of dream manuals that says, oh, well, if you dream about a cat or if you dream about losing your teeth or something like that, it means that. It may very well have meant that at some time for some people, but not across the board. And of course, there's all the Jungian archetypes and all that sort of stuff. But those are the big dreams, which we don't have that much. I think we have to admit that those big dreams are few and far between. And that's what makes them big. You know, if you have mystical experiences every day, what's the point? <laughs> you know, I have to say, I, I do often, you know, because I'm in this world, I do often come across people who tell me about the 49th mystical experience. And I, it's just wonderful. But 
didn't you get it on the 48th? <laughs> right. You know, so, I mean, you have the big dreams when you need them. They're not entertainment. And this is, I have a little dream to pick with the kind of lucid dream proponents. I'm not against it as a stupid way to even talk about it, but just in the sense that kind of using the dream state in order to achieve kind of ego-based needs and aims. Oh, well, if I use the dream state, I can develop my creativity or I, I can develop my self-esteem or whatever sort of thing like that. Whereas Jung would say, no, we should keep our hands off. It's, in a way, it's the last little bit of nature that's allowed us, that's inside us. It's not nature we have to go out and find somewhere out in the woods, it's inside us. Because it comes from another source. It complements the ego. It's something other than the ego. So if you start trying to think of how can I use this, and you start thinking of it in a utilitarian way, it just gets problematic at the same time, you know, fine, go do it. I mean, I, I know people who pursue this and, you know, there's, you know, lots of different books about how you can develop lucid dreaming and, you know, stay awake in dreams. And that's part of a variety of different mystical techniques, you know, Tibetan yoga, dream yoga is about that, is like maintaining wakefulness in the dream state. But that's in order to convince you that, okay, well, the dream state is an illusion. If I'm not awake in the dream state, I'm immersed in the illusion. Right. But when I gain lucidity within it, I've raised myself up out of the illusion. I can recognize that's an illusion. And the next step is to recognize that the waking life is similarly an illusion like that. And so, you know, that's kind of the Buddhist kind of aim. I understand that, but Jung's point of view is like, well, the dream is trying to say something to you. So there's a cleavage there between the two different things, just like anything else. You know, there's arguments about all different, you know, there's arguments about the waking state as well. Mm -hmm. Right on. Well, fascinating stuff. You are a living fountain of knowledge, and <laughs> I really enjoyed the book. Dreaming Ahead of Time is a great read, and I appreciate your willingness to come back and talk to me when podcasts like this are in no short supply. No, no. Always a pleasure. It takes a lot out of me to try to keep up with you, man, but it is worth it. Before we go, remind the people of your body of work, the new book, your website, any upcoming work worth a mention, and all that good stuff, if they might want to follow up after listening to this. Okay. Well, the new book is called Dreaming Ahead of Time, Experiences in Precognitive Dreams, Synchronicities, and Coincidence. It's published by Flores Books, and uh, it's out available now on Kindle, the digital edition and the hard copy in the States. I think it's not until May and in the UK sometime later this month. I have a website, just my name, garylockman.co.uk. I post things there quite a bit. I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook. It's not hard to find these days. So if you're really interested, I'm sure we can meet up. Right on. Great. Well, you are the man and it was a pleasure once again. Keep up the great work and take care. I'll do my best. Exit light enter night, people. Gary Lockman bringing it like only he can. You know, I was really grateful when he reached out to tell me about the new book because he's such a great writer and has really impressive recall for all the bright minds and ideas that he's researched. So if he thinks THC is worthy of his time, well, I'm proud of that. But some of my previous episodes that focused on dreams really just ended up not being the best. We have done it a time or two over the years. 
So I had a little trepidation, but I don't know what I was so worried about. Gary's book is deep and dense and covers a vast amount of compelling ideas related to precognitive dreams and time and the law of large numbers. And as soon as I got a little bit into the book, I knew we were going to have a great show. Dreams are quite weird, and it's also strange that describing a dream to someone never really translates. The meaning is always so personal. But the hypnagogic state itself is pretty compelling, knowing just how many mystics and clairvoyants use that half-awake, half-dreaming state, knowing just how many abductions and bedroom visitations happen in that state as well. It's all quite odd. <laughs> Another story I was reminded of from Gary's book that I don't think we brought up was that Edison used to fall asleep in a chair with ball bearings in his hand, and when they dropped to the floor, he'd be awakened from that state, and if he concentrated on a problem as he drifted off, he'd oftentimes get a solution that way. Obviously, we've all heard the phrase, let me sleep on it when making a decision, but how often do we actually think about our problem or even goals when we drift off? It's like you can't get the insight that that state is designed to give you if you don't first concentrate on whatever issue it is. So maybe do that more often. <laughs> I would certainly say I've had dreams where the details felt more real than waking life. It's as if my senses seemed more heightened than waking life. Years later, I even remember a dream I had where I had these epic adventures with some warrior woman, like an action movie that went from sci-fi to horror to medieval. But I remember the bond I had with this character being stronger than so many relationships I've had in real life. And this is from when I was like 12. It was as if we formed a really deep bond because we went through so many traumatic, dangerous events together. But then it's gone. I had another dream years ago that explained the mechanics of spirit interaction in a bunch of different scenarios and many stories. And I woke up with the very aggressive notion ringing in my head that it should be turned into a movie called Pledge. I still think that's a great name for a movie about spirit interactions even if I would get sued from the cleaning spray company. Plus, we've all had those weird falling sensation dreams. What the hell's that about? It seems as if, just like the night sky, it's a baked-in call to reflect on what life even is, but we just so often don't. I did strategically bring up the Law of Large Numbers at the end of the free show, because I think that's such a cool phenomenon. It's like the world is a symphony of events if you zoom out far enough. And it got me thinking about good and bad luck in general. You know, it's actually been a long time since I've had a day where a bunch of things went wrong all at once, but I did have this day recently that I'm just in awe of. It started with me prepped and ready for an interview, and we get on the call, and my guest says, I only have time for one hour. And I say, well, it's a two-hour show. We agreed to this. It was in my interview request. I can't just do an hour. And they said, well, I don't have two hours in me, and I don't think I ever will. So I prepped for this show that the guy said he would do and now won't do. And I said, all right, I guess we're at an impasse. And we hung up. So that's about the most frustrating thing that can happen to me work-wise. And I called my wife because she took the baby to the zoo so I could have a quiet place to record. And... I was so frustrated. I'm like, let me go to the zoo, too. And we hung out there for a while, and then we put Theory in my car, and not even a mile out of Balboa Park, I run over a big rock in the road, and I get a flat tire. So 
baby screaming. I pulled over and I'm up against a curb that makes it really hard to change the tire. I call my wife. She picks up the baby and she goes home. I get the jack out of my car, which I've yet to use since I bought this car, and the center screw on it is bent so badly it makes changing this tire even harder. But I get it done, and I go to leave, and my car battery is dead because I had my flashers on for so long. My wife has to come all the way back, we jump the car, and then before she can even get home, a guy sideswipes her right on the baby's car seat side and then drives off. So, nothing with any lasting consequences. Everyone and everything is ultimately fine. But what a day. Neither of us have ever been in a hit and run. I've changed dozens of tires with no problems. And the chances of an interview being cancelled in that way has only happened like twice in ten years. So it was a perfect storm of annoying events. When it rains it pours, I guess, but the probability was so low that it just got me thinking about some spirit riding me, or maybe someone cursed me, or maybe the astrology was always pointing to that being a bad day, and if I was more aware of my chart and didn't plan an interview for that day, maybe it all would have passed over me. But Gary is great, and when I was nervous that we could fill a show with this book, I said, how about we do Dreaming Ahead of Time for the first hour and Rudolf Steiner in the second, and he was cool with that. But I went back to our last interview, and we actually talked about Steiner quite a lot. So I pulled an audible and switched it to Hermes, because he had a great recent presentation on the Hermes figure, and I thought that that was a great decision, and it all worked out really well. Some of the other Plus Show topics would be ancient cultures' thoughts on dreams, how to make more synchronicity, Albertus Magnus, heightened emotions and magic-slash-synchronicity, Ascended Masters and Astral Hobos, and a little bit about alchemy and Hermes. It was a great time. He knows a lot about a lot. Sign up for Plus if you like what I do and how I do it and you want a little bit more. Also, pick up the book if you think this is your bag because there are way more details in it than we could ever cover in a two-hour interview. It's a very good book. But in higher side news, I finally got to meet Darren and Graham of Gramerica in the flesh. I also met Joe Roop, Brandon Powell, Owen Hunt, one of the Snake Brothers, and a lot of cool people who surprisingly knew who I was and were all very nice and complimentary. This was an event in Pine Top, Arizona. The Gramerica guys do these things all the time on their website, contactatthecabin.com. This one was called Magic on the Mountains. There was some Wim Hof breathing. There were kiddie pools of very cold water set up outside, and people did the Wim Hof breathing and jumped in the water. It was quite a show for me sitting there smoking a joint next to the fire, but it was a really good time. The fact that I was so recognizable and well-liked by the crowd was very off-putting for my buddy who came with me. He just had no idea that people would want to take pictures with me or anything like that, which was just quite funny. We've known each other half my life, probably 20 years, so I got a kick out of that. But you never know. THC is just an audio show, and nobody was there for me, so I wouldn't have been surprised if nobody knew who I was. I guess my voice is a little unique, and that maybe gave it away. But we had a good time. We were cheering to the mandates dropping across Canada, and then... Just as I got home, we have this emergency order in Canada, and Trudeau is going after the bank accounts of the truckers, and that's a scary place that nobody wants to be. 
Obviously, we're still in the middle of the story, but instead of just conceding and saying, fine, truckers can go unvaccinated. It's only a small percentage anyway. Most people already got the shot. And we know that the shot doesn't work. So this makes no sense. I thought they were just about to back down, but instead they escalated to an unprecedented level. The fact that a PSYOP trucker protest is one of the cards in the Illuminati card game that's very prophetic doesn't make me feel any better about any of this. But we are at that turn off the money faucet if you step out of line point in the timeline that Gordon laid out ever so well in our last episode, I think in January or maybe December. And I'm not happy about it. It's probably worthy of an episode at this point, but let's see how far this goes. I would hate to cover something right before the next big chapter in that story, but it's something we should all be keeping an eye on. Also, Plus members now have a more robust account management page. My guys put that together, and it's quite nice. It does have all the information you'd want, but we're probably going to jazz it up a bit more and make it a fuller dashboard that shows latest episodes, latest forum posts, and all your account stuff right there when you log in. But already, it's a lot simpler to change your password, your username, your card on file, cancel your account if you need to, all in an effort to make Plus memberships more self-managed and cut down on the money that I pay for support. So it's a big step in the right direction. I am happy with it so far. As for the calendar of events at HiresideMeetups.com, we have New York City this weekend on February 18th at Cafe 28. And then on February 24th, someone added a combined meetup with No Agenda listeners. Why not unite the tribes, huh? So if you're a fan of both shows or either, head down to Pike's Peak Brewing on February 24th in Colorado Springs, Colorado, the very city I was born in, funny enough and have some beers and meet some new friends. And the rest of the events go on into March, so we'll wait on those. But hop on over to the calendar and RSVP for these events if you're in the area, and of course, feel free to make your own. We're supporting craft beer all over this great nation, and the world, really. And finally, big thanks again to Gary for coming back on. He is one of the good ones. What the hell is up with precognitive dreams, time, the hypnagogic state, and life itself? We may never really know, but we can keep pulling on the threads, right? Thanks for sticking with me. The members are so, so much appreciated. It's the only way I can keep this up. And I'll see you next time. I've done my part. Your move, dream strangeness suppressors, deeper consciousness concealers, and directors of the day-to-day distractions that keep us from the mysteries. Your fucking Lucid dreams are so vivid Cause you go to bed at seven And your brain comes alive Cause you hate your nine to five You wake up with a dread And make sure your cats are fed Did your brain talk to a ghost Who moved your coffee and your toast As you listen to the higher side chats You get to your desk And your boss says it's a mess And your soul slowly grows To a place where nothing grows When you think he's not around You insert a steady sound The OM says turn it down And you say it's just the higher side chats Oh, do you think you'll be invited To Bohemia Grove To a Bilderberg Club Oh, do you think you'll be invited 
by a Rothschild to a party on a submarine. Diving down to the center of the earth, through the Marianas Trench, your teeth begin to clench from the sulfurous stench. The mask you're given doesn't fit, cause you're not one of them. Starting today, you'll make plans to get away. There's no one to hold you down, and the what-ifs start to drown. Then you wake to the glare of a cold fluorescent stare, and the light winks at you, cause its life is almost through, but it's holding on to quit time just like you. It's time for the high side chats. And that is another show complete. Remember, as much as you enjoyed this, which is just the free first hour, I hope you'll become a Plus member to hear the full two-hour interviews. You also can engage with other Plus members in the comments and the forums, and you'll find your answer to one of the most common questions I get, which is where can I find those cover songs that you use at the end of the show? Well, they are free downloads for Plus members too. And without Plus members, I can't hire the occasional musician to bring these odd cover song ideas to fruition. Plus members are how I'm able to do what I do without ads and without the big machine being on my back. We can fit so much more into a two-hour interview, and I do my best to make it worth your time and money. The conversation only gets deeper, weirder, and more controversial in that private hour. How could it not the way things are going? But the best way to sign up is at thehiresidechats.com, where new first-time subscribers always get a free seven-day trial because I'm just that confident. There's no PayPal on the website, but if you need to use PayPal, then sign up through Patreon and you get all the same episodes. Our website is a credit or debit system, but you can also scope out the other options like a few various cryptos, cash or check, mail to the P.O. Box. And I'll even barter with most people if you have your own business and produce something nice that my wife or kid or taste buds might like. But the architects of consensus reality have made it clear that these themes and topics aren't really welcome on the main stage. And so this is how we secure a little counterculture corner for ourselves, and I hope you'll join Plus because that is the only way it works. Besides, you can cancel anytime right on your profile page. The most common concern I hear is people just being unsure if THC Plus will work with their podcast app, and the answer is probably yes. But if not, we have several high-level app recommendations for whatever phone you use, and the website is made for mobile, too. We're trained to tip a waitress for bringing us a sandwich, but that tip doesn't give you access to a second sandwich. Really, I'm not asking for any more than that, and I think I offer a better service. Come get your second serving of tasty conspiracy goodness in exchange for that small token of your appreciation. Beyond that, let it also be known that we have grown and survived as long as we have by word of mouth. I don't care so much about social media likes or follows, but tell the right people about THC. And not just listeners, but the high-level figures who are better suited to sit down with me than most other hosts. And if you can help me with any of these things, I can work to bring you better shows, which is just a win-win for both of us. Informative, entertaining, and action-packed. It also never hurts to thank a guest you liked if you have the time either. We want them to know people are listening, so they're willing to come back down the road too. 
Thank you for spending some time with me and cheers to a better tomorrow.